thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valves. Good evening and welcome. Tonight, in a follow-up to February's show, we're discussing teaching writing in prisons with criminologist Dr Ella Simpson, reading consultant and festival director David Kendall, and writer, editor and translator Marek Kazmierski. So join us as we explore how writing supports persistence and the kind of writing inmates produce. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valls on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me this evening at the start of the summer term. We've reached that point in the year now when the walk across the college campus from the car park to the neo-Gothic splendour of the English department classrooms brings with it either the scent of freshly mown cricket pitches or the smell of sudden downpours on canvas covers. The cricket season has this strange way of creeping up on you in England. The Easter period has seen our year 11 and year 13 students putting their final revision plans into action, while in some cases squeezing in a choral visit to St Peter's in Rome and a cricket tour of Sri Lanka. Our public exam students are due to finish their lessons at the end of half term, while some of our BTEC students have finished their courses this week, having wrapped up their final assessments in the last few days. Most of them now know what grades they're likely to be walking away with on results day and can focus their efforts on their other subjects. Our art students have just started their 15 hour exams and are in the process of bringing the designs for their final pieces to life. I've managed to collate, download, process, condense, rename, upload, copy and submit the audio visual recordings of our year 11 GCSE English language speaking and listening tests. Is there any more time consuming administrative task in the diary of an English department head? And my own year 11 set are refamiliarizing themselves with the descriptive writing techniques, summary skills and annotation methods that they will be drawing on in their IGCSE first language English exams next week. By Friday, Their English studies will be nothing but a memory, a good one with any luck, so that they won't be boomeranging their way back to me in year 12. 
Over Easter, I was lucky enough to get to Philip Glass's opera at Natan at the Coliseum Theatre in London, a performance that I've wanted to see live for some time, and after watching a screening from New York Metro Metropolitan Theatre during lockdown, Glass's opera about the rise and fall of this often overlooked pharaoh is notable for a number of things. First, it is essentially a plotless performance. The three acts principally offer a series of portraits from the life of the pharaoh running from his coronation shortly after his father's death to his introduction of monotheism to Egypt, closing with his eventual death and the coronation of his successor Tutankhamun. The slow motion dance and stage movements are shaped by the outlines of hieroglyphs to the extent that the visual experience is probably best described as watching an animated freeze. Second, this opera sees the lead role of Akhenaten taken by a countertenor, and the excellent Anthony Roth Costanzo remains on form throughout the performance. The effect of hearing this strange, unearthly tone rising above a minimal string accompaniment at various points in the performance, especially during the hair-raising hymn to the sun that concludes Act Two, lends the whole spectacle a truly transcendent quality. It isn't so very hard to believe that the young pharaoh really is communing with the enigmatic god of the sun ray as he ascends a staircase towards the bright orange globe that hangs over a pure blue-lit stage. Third, the opera is largely sung in untranslated Egyptian, Hebrew and Akkadian, so the meanings effectively conveyed by the trance-like score and the onstage tableau of soloists and ensemble. I attended an ENO relaxed performance, which meant my daughter also got her first experience of watching a full-length opera for free, with the chance to come and go as she needed, surrounded by adults and young people who might otherwise have been unable for a host of reasons to commit to sitting for three hours in a darkened theatre. Opera needs to cultivate new audiences to survive, and the ENO have done a fine job of bringing one of the 20th century's most important operas to so many people. I'm hoping we might see a revival of Glass's Einstein on the Beach and Gandhi before long. The time is surely right for the portrait trilogy to be produced in its entirety. Once I returned from London, I sat down for a couple of days to begin the challenging task of working out how my department is going to teach a streetcar named Desire to year 10 for their literature exams, as Tennessee Williams manages to pull off the astonishing feat of writing a play without a single likeable character anywhere in the cast list. Although the message of Williams's prose is certainly more immediately accessible than the Shakespearean blank verse that our students encountered while reading Macbeth in year nine. I was also struck by just how much meaning isn't spoken by Blanche, Stella and Stanley on stage, by the extent to which the unspeakable remains implied, hinted at and glossed over, and by just how grown up a play this sounds to my middle aged ears. Dan and Claire have made a great start already in giving Year 10 a sense of how different 1940s Louisiana was to 21st century North Yorkshire. I'll be interested to see what our students make of it all in their end of year exams.
But in tonight's show, we turn our thoughts once again to the experiences of the adults and young people who are engaging with reading and writing in English prisons. Last time, we heard from Cam Stevens, a former inmate who had built a career in documentary filmmaking after attending a series of creative writing workshops run by Dr. Ella Simpson, who joins us again this evening. Ella is a criminologist and poet based at the University of Greenwich, where she researches creative writing in the criminal justice sector. Before returning to academia, Ella worked for a decade as a creative writing facilitator in several prisons in England. Ella is fascinated by the stories that are made in prisons and the ways that stories can set us free. Good evening, Ella, and thank you for being with us on Teachers Talk Radio tonight. Are you there on the line? Our second guest, David Kendall, is a writer and specialist in engaging people who think that reading is not for them. He is co-director of Penned Up, a literature festival dedicated to bringing authors, performers, artists, poets and musicians into the typically closed world of prisons. David has worked with prisoners in a variety of custodial settings, from young offenders institutions to uh, adult prisons, and has also worked on writing and editing projects. Okay, David should be joining us shortly. Our third guest tonight, Marek uh, Kamieski, is a writer, editor and translator. Having settled in the UK after escaping communist Poland in 1985, Marek took to translating poetry from Polish to English and has published work in journals including The White Review, The Guardian, 3AM Magazine and Poetry Wales. Marek was also the managing editor of the prison journal Not Shut Up a member of the English PEN Readers and Writers Committee and founder of Off Press, an independent publishing house which has worked with the British Council, English PEN, the Southbank Centre, the Polish Cultural Institute and the Office of the Mayor of London. He is currently living and working in his native Poland and I think joins us from Warsaw this evening. Good evening, Marek. Are you able to call in now? Lovely. You can hear me from Warszawa. We can hear you loud and clear. Yes, thank you for joining us. Marvellous. Do carry on. So I think the only person we need to await is David, but we will mm. move on, I think, and hopefully he'll be with us before long. Is this David now? Perfect. The team is all assembled for tonight's show on prison writing. Um, I wonder if we might start off, Ella, by thinking about some of the challenges that prisoners face and the role in which reading and writing plays into systems, giving us the benefit of your knowledge as a criminologist. Yeah, um, I would love to start off with that. Um, and just as you were saying, so, you know, last time we, we spoke together, it was very interesting. We were, in some ways, we were looking at sort of the, the, the creative talent that exists um, within our prisons and, and it clearly does cam's a great example of that um but i think not everybody is able or able yet um to be able to achieve that level of work so um you know 
what are the ways that we can think about that? And, and, and obviously, it's a really important dimension, uh, the issue of accessibility um, in terms of offering creative writing in prisons um, and, and really allowing as many people who want to have a go um, to come along. So I think part of that is about breaking down assumptions about what, who can and can't be a writer. You know, it's not all Shakespeare. We don't have a bit, although actually Shakespeare is very popular when it's made accessible um, in prisons. Um, it, it, there's a big following, um, but that's not all it is. So there's that kind of dimension to accessibility, but also then thinking about um, making sessions accessible for people who have or, or think they have low levels of literacy. And I think um, this appeal to uh, improve literacy and education more generally is often used when we're making a case for bringing uh, creative writing into prisons. And of course, that makes sense um, when we bear in mind that a key sort of dimension of, of prison um, is, is the idea of rehabilitation. So creative writing becomes presented as this kind of informal bridge uh, to then allow people to engage with more formal education and then from there to um, increase chances of employment after release. And, and indeed, the research suggests, you know, there's, there's some credence to, to all of that. But to only focus on those basic skills um, and the link then to employability, I think it's a miss a lot of the other benefits um, that come from giving people in prison that opportunity to write creatively. And so one of the ways of framing those benefits um, is in terms of desistance theories. Um, and I'd like, I'll just give you a brief introduction to what we mean by desistance theories, um, and particularly those aspects that are relevant uh, to creative writing in prisons. So essentially, desistance theories are about asking why people stop committing crime. Um, now, in terms of criminology, that was quite a radical proposition. So for the first couple of hundred years of, of, of criminologists studying crime, they were fascinated by why people start committing crime, far less interested uh, in what made people stop. Um, and there were some early studies done in the mid-20th century was really the start of it. Um, but desistance research didn't really sort of pick up until the 1970s. And there were, so actually there were a number of longitudinal studies that were set up with children um, that were intending to look at how those young people's offending um, played out over the life course. Only then for the researchers to discover that lots of those young people didn't start offending in the first place. And the ones who did um, often stopped offending of their own accord or, or had a decrease um, in the amount of offending. So this left the researchers with a bit of a problem trying to explain this spontaneous cessation from, from offending. So that's kind of the root of it. It's developed a great deal since then. There, there are probably four key sort of areas of explanation. Um, as to why people stop offending. So the stuff around ontogenic explanation, so concerned with biology, maturation, essentially people just grow out of it. 
they stop stealing sweets from the local shop or whatever it is. Um, so that's one set of explanations. So can I ask, has somebody got their mic live? Because I'm here because I'm in a room on my own. Um, so that's the first set of explanations. Then there are sociogenic explanations. So this is thinking about social structure. Um, actually, what Shad Maruna terms as, as um, a steady job and the love of a good woman. So all those kind of social bonds are things that people tie into. Thirdly, there are situational explanations. So thinking about the environments people live in, the routine daily activities. But most relevant to our conversation um, are what Beth Weaver terms interactionist theories. So these are theories that take into account the subjective dimensions of desistance. Um, and that includes ideas around narrative and also around identity and, and those two things coming together. So within this work, the idea um, that the stories we tell about ourselves are important to our ability to desist from crime. And, and so that's one of the things that it might be quite useful to think about um, further in our conversation today. And then the, the second and, and the final thing that, that I take from desistance theory in my own research um, is the notion of intermediate outcomes. So this can move us away from trying to demonstrate a, a causal relationship between, for example, writing a poem um, and then never, fitting, never committing a, a crime ever again, which is quite a tough call. It's a very difficult thing to um, find a correlation with. But instead, it allows us to identify smaller incremental changes um, that may contribute to desistance over a longer period of time. So going back to those ideas about identity, someone who begins to tell a story about themselves as a writer or about a dad or a successful student, maybe putting themselves on the road to becoming a writer or a better dad, etc. Um, and there's a, a psychologist called Jerome Bruner who, who says this really beautifully. He says, in the end, we become the autobiographical narratives by which we tell about our lives. Um, so then thinking about that in terms of practicing, telling stories, writing stories about ourselves, about what we want to do or who we might become. So through that practice of fiction within the prison creative writing context, do we, become, do we begin to become those people in our actual factual lives? Um, so, yeah, just some kind of thought points, some, some kind of prompts taken from desistance theory that I hope might be productive and helpful as we talk uh, through some ideas this evening. Thanks very much. That's really useful as a kind of way of thinking about the role that writers and teaching writing has in prisons as a way of getting people back out into the world and onto the straight and narrow. Um, we've got a listener here, William O'Connor, who's sent in a couple of comments already. Um, he seems to be quite uh, clear that family can play quite a significant role in desistance, in his view. And if you have any questions you'd like to put to our panellists tonight, then, William, by all means, do 
put them in the text to us and uh, we'll put them to our panel. Um, is family a significant factor in persistence, do you think? Ella? I think it's an excellent point, William. And it's certainly so thinking about those different um, explanations given by desistance theorists, d those um, social factors, family is a big part of that. Um, and, and family ties either to your, your biological family or, or to your, um, you know, your, your partner, as, as, as we were saying, you know, the, the love of a good woman. So marriage, um, having children, keeping connections with those children, all, all showing the research as, as being very significant. So, yeah, I think it's an, an excellent point. Thank you, Ella. We talked last time about your experience of teaching creative writing in the prisons that you were involved in. So I wonder if we might bring in David at this point to talk a little bit about his experience. Good evening to you, David. Good evening. Would you like to tell us about your experience in a range of different prisons and the role that your writing classes have played in the lives of these prisoners as they've moved through the system and out into the outside world? Well, it's, it's kind of a many and varied role, I think. Um, in some ways, you can spend a whole morning creating fictions or telling memoir stories, polishing bits of, of writing, getting people ready to have the courage to read them out loud, feeling that you've done you know, a great three and a half hours, because most workshops are pretty long in prison. Do your three and a half hours, you break for lunch, and one of the best writers in the class says, oh, thank you very much, you've killed the morning. And, you know, it, for, for that person, the, the main benefit of that workshop was it passed the time, you know. It may have been in a creative way, but when he said it killed the morning, that's exactly what he means. For other people, it's a sense of identity and they're getting a sense of who they try to catch hold of the identity of who they were before they come into prison. That's what I hear most commonly, that people said, this is who I was before I came into prison. So writing has a strong message and a strong link to identity there. And we've heard a little bit from Ella already about the importance of narratives. How much has this played a role in your practice, do you think? I think in in terms of creating narratives for themselves, it obviously it helps. If you're creating stories for your children, then that enriches your role as a father. I think that's that's brilliant. And I think it more than anything, it engages people. Uh, and it's very easy to be disengaged in prison, to, to cut off, to disconnect. Um, and the most important thing for anybody using arts or writing is to connect people back to each other, back to writing, back to whatever art form, back to education if they wish it to do. But it's really you're trying to you're battling against apathy and disconnection. And would you say that's the similar struggle in each of the settings you've worked in? I think it's always different. I think the main thing is to try to get people to engage. It's very different um, to engage 15 to 17 year olds than it is people between 35 and 70. Um, young people are 
both easier to engage and much harder to maintain the engagement. Um, it's interesting when I've worked uh, fairly recently with um, sort of teenage boys, 15 to 17 year olds, and um, setting them creative writing exercises when I've also done exactly the same creative writing exercise with lower sixth formers in a local high school and seeing the difference in styles of writing and approach to writing is very different from um, the people in prison to those that are in the lower sixth form. And what's the difference that you notice in the style or the themes of the work? It's not really, I suppose, that surprising. The kids in sixth form um, feel they have to throw as many adjectives in, as many flowery and lovely phrases, many of which are pretty good, some of them. Um, but they write about things, while as the guys in prison um, with less time spent in school, generally, not always, but generally, um, and less time in that environment, they write more from their direct experience and they're probably, they're far more influenced by um, um, rap and grime. So they will often tend to, to, to rhyme and, and look for the, the sound of words as much as the meaning of words. So they, they feel more direct, um, not necessarily from the heart, but just written from a, a point of view that knows where it stands and is very direct. While the, the young people in the sixth form, they were sort of writing around things, trying to tell little stories about things, not directly from their own experience. So when you're working with youths and when you're working with adults, David, do you prepare those sessions very differently or do you have a similar kind of model that you adapt? It's a similar model, but it adapts to the people in the group, whether it's their age, whether it's their mood, whether something's just happened in the prison, so we're trying to deal with that. I have a box of tricks that I bring out each time, and some of it we do, some of it not. Some things will not appeal um, to the young people that will, or will appeal differently um, to the adults. I am a couple of weeks ago. I was in a prison and um, I, I had a large A2 um, printout of the lyrics to Hurt, um, which was made famous by Johnny Cash. And um, I, the, the, the task was to take one line from the song and um, write a short story based on that as your title. And it was great, worked really well. Um, but for the, when that was a similar thing was done with the, the younger, men as other teenagers they found that more difficult to and they stuck again they, they, they rather than veering off from their own experience they kept it on their own experience brilliant thank you for that description of how this writing comes into being in the space of the prison um do you set the rooms up any differently david well, like, you know, all facilitators, you know, the, the, the things you've got control of is the room and the information people hopefully have before they arrive in about what you're supposed to be doing. I stick generally with um, a loose horseshoe or I avoid classrooms, put it that way. 
So we're all around one big table, generally. Uh, if I want people to behave like they did at school, I can put them behind desks and they will immediately start leaning back on the chairs, immediately start larking around. Uh, we all do it. It doesn't matter whether you're 45 or 15. We've all learned that and our bodies slip back into those habits. So I do take time to try and create an environment where people are looking at each other quite closely, can see each other, but they can find a comfortable space, but it doesn't look like a classroom. Brilliant. So we've got William here says many of these adult prisoners are trying to learn what most of us learned when we were young. So is there a kind of element of frustration sometimes that has to be controlled and managed? I think there's a little bit of that. I think if that if William is trying to um, talk about literacy, so people are struggling to um, articulate themselves, generally in the workshops that I'm running, I will tell people straight away, don't worry about spelling and punctuation. We'll deal with that as and when you produce something. Um, so, and we'll, and we'll talk as we're working through. If somebody goes, oh, I've got to be a word for so-and-so, and we'll pass it around. I think a lot of the time we can get over people's lack of confidence by working together and not making it feel like a classroom. Most things can be edited and punctuation can be put in once we've read out the work. People then know better where the punctuation should be. Can I just come in on that? Yes. <laughs> I can't see you, so um, I, I can't do visual oh. cues. Um, I think it's so it's something what William was saying and, and, and you're responding to that, David, about literacy levels. I think is it's really interesting and I think there's a danger that we take away a stereotype of who we're working with in prisons and also a stereotype that people who are in prison sometimes buy into themselves. So there's actually, there wasn't any research done on, on literacy levels um, in prisons until 2016 before that there hadn't been anything done for 15 years and we were going off 15 year old stats so in 2016 um a researcher called chris um did some really rigorous research around both literacy and numeracy and what he found he also did a comparison actually with the skills for life uh, survey that had been done with the general population um uh, about five years earlier but what he found in terms of the prison population was 50% of people in prison had literacy skills at level one or above. Okay. Um, so there's an, that's 50%. It, it's, it's half of people, you know, who are, who are at least functionally literate have got basic skills and who are doing stuff it's less than the general population which is 86 percent fair enough but this idea that everybody in prison doesn't have good literacy or doesn't have an, the amount of literacy you would need to come and, and, and be involved in a creative writing um, class is a bit of a fallacy and and the other thing even those figures when we think about how um, people coming into prison are tested around literacy and numeracy. It's done on the first week. They are thinking about a billion other things 
Um, I've worked a lot in women's prisons, so where their kids are, if they're safe, uh, is a partner going to pick them up? All those kind of real-life things are going on. And then you're sat down in a classroom, and it is a classroom, and you give them the BSA test and said, you know, fill this in. We're monitoring your literacy. So it's not the best circumstances in which to shine as a student. You know, and, I, and I've certainly worked with people who've come in and said, I can't read and write. And that's not true. They can and they do. But n exactly what you were saying, David, not with perfect spelling, um, not ha having a good grasp of the rules of grammar and syntax, etc. But they can express themselves. So I think it's just worth bearing in mind when we're thinking you know, it's much more variegated, it's much more um, nuanced and varied than I think sometimes we can have the impression of um, because of, you know, media representations of the people who are in our prisons. Thank you, Ella. I think we've got a couple of callers who would like to call in. So I've got somebody called Energy Divineal, I think, on the chat would you like to call in now and um, we'll let you put your question or your point to the panel here so in we come uh, good evening thanks for calling in tonight grand day to you all i usually greet everyone with islam which simply means peace but i don't wish to offend anyone so yeah islam all it's good to hear from you what would you like to say to us this evening as a mother of four and a grandmother of two, I've elucidated my sons and daughters in the home. For the last three, the, the oldest one did experience public school. I'm here in North America. I am an originally woman of North America. And with Daniel, he's the oldest one. I had thoughts in my mind that I didn't wish to put him in public school. As a baby, as a young person getting his land legs together, you know, learning how to walk. That was a thought that came to me. And then years later, I had his sister and then his two brothers after that, which those three did not experience the public school system here in North America at all. And I've been able to elucidate them. So, and it's been such an enriching experience. And I'm so grateful to have that, that opportunity, especially with a lot of things that's happening in the public school systems here in america it just really boggles the mind how people are still utilizing you know and i appreciate the teachers that are still war warrioring up to go into those schools because a lot of the students whew, it's a lot and then the overstuffed classrooms and the lack of resources it's just a lot that's it i mean did you have any particular views on teaching in prisons in America, because of course, our guests tonight have all taught in uh, prisons in the United Kingdom. Do you have any views on the way children and adults are taught in American prisons? I would have loved to have been able to get into the prison that's in my neck of the woods. As a grand sheik, uh, I would have loved to have been able to go in there to assist in a elucidation or educational program for those who are supposedly being rehabilitated, but 
when you really look at those platforms, those those systems, they're not really looking to really rehabilitate the men and women who are incarcerated. They're just looking for the free labor because it's enterprise. I used to work for the Department of Corrections in North Carolina, and they have an enterprise department, and that's where those inmates create not just license plates, but the very things we use in our day-to-day lives, and we don't know it. You know, and to allow us to come in there and educate those men and women with things like the nine major facets of activity that we all indulge in as a species like economics, education, entertainment, labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war. Those are topics that we need to put on the table and really build curriculum to allow us to gain the ability to be beneficial to our brothers and sisters, mankind, when we're operating out here in society. So inside these prisons, I've found being an ex-employee, as well as a grant chief who's willing to go in and have been blocked on getting access. What was the reason that you were blocked? Was, Did you find out? That, yeah, that's why I would say, because I'm not of the Christian faith, but of the Islamic faith, I've been blocked not allowed to go in. I've been on this campaign for maybe four years now. And it's kind of sad because the intent is to basically get these men and women ready to get back out here and be productive members of society. But it doesn't seem like that system is allowing that to happen because I'm not sharing a certain uh, religious viewpoint. But we're talking Uh, education here. You know, education should not... Exactly. You know, so it's... It's just politics. It's it's a political thing, if you ask me. Uh, But it doesn't stop me from doing the work that I'm doing with the young folks. So, like I said, I have uh, three of my own. I have my grandsons, and it sounds like another young lady's going to be bringing her young daughter through a couple of days a week to, you know, work with us. Okay. Well, thank you very much for calling in tonight and giving us your perspective from North Carolina. I might put some of your points now to our panel. Thank you very much for calling in. So, Ella, is there a sense that perhaps the prison system in America is more inclined to view prisoners as a source of labor rather than giving them the opportunity to write um, in a free way, perhaps, as we would like to think we do here on occasions when we get it right? Okay, so I'm out of my area of expertise. I don't know that much about North America, although I actually I did just come back from a conference um, at the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences, and, and that was quite a showcase of some of the uh, creative initiatives that are going on. Um, but I think it, disp- it depends a lot state by state. So Colorado seemed to be very enlightened at the minute. California have led the way um, in arts education in prisons and have just given a, an organisation, I can't, $3.4 million in order to sort of increase the, the creative work they're doing within the state of California. So I think it depends in terms of which state you're in. I think one of the differences... And, and, and maybe this is relevant to, to what your caller is saying. A lot of the um, provision in the States is through um, volunteers. 
so charitable organizations um, but, uh, and also universities. So the states have quite a lot of prison university partnerships um, that have been running for a long time, you know, sort of 15, 20 years, some of those projects. Um, so it's volunteers going in, um, unpaid work. And I wonder if the screening processes are different in those instances. I don't know, because as I say, I'm not an expert um, on creative arts in, in the US uh, prison system. So, I mean, I think it's really, what I think what you call it is saying is, is really tough and is a reflection of also in, in the UK, you know, there are issues where religion gets conflated re with radicalization um, in some very messy, um, some very messy ways. I mean, I think the answer to it is potentially to make creatives, art, creative arts provision into a statutory um, requirement. So there is an amount of creative arts being put into every prison and anyone can apply for those jobs as you would a, a job for an English teacher or a, a mathematics teacher or whatever. Um, but I, I'd also be interested to hear what um, David and, and Merrick think about this as well. Yeah, well, I, I think it's really important that we explore the issue really of identity formation, which we've we've touched on a little bit tonight, and the degree to which curriculum informs what happens in prisons and what doesn't. Um, I'm very conscious I want to bring Marek in. We've got to go to the news now, so we will go to the news and then we'll hear from Marek. Your own experiences, Marek, would be brilliant to add to this debate. And then we will see where we go for the rest of the show. And here comes the news. Yes. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines, specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Here's the news. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. ASCOL is due to ballot members for the first time in its history. The four education unions will ballot over strike action this term and, if backed by members, would see action stretching into next year and could lead to full school closures. The government continues to hold its position that the most recent pay offer is fair and reasonable and that next year school funding will be at its highest level in history. Schools Week covers the further implications of school funding issues in a story about the cuts some head teachers are making. In a survey conducted by the National Foundation for Education Research for the Sutton Trust, it was found that schools are cutting back on school trips, teaching assistance and IT equipment to help balance stretch budgets. Responses from 1,428 primary and secondary teachers show 50% of senior leaders said their school had cut back on trips and outings this year. 
schools in the most disadvantaged areas were most likely to be impacted by cuts to trips. The research suggests that in secondary schools, leaders are also cutting back on subject choices at both GCSE and A level. The Department for Education has estimated schools overall could afford 2.4 billion in new spending between 2022 and 2024 before facing net pressure on their budgets. But the Confederation of School Trusts warned its members could face a prolonged period of financial challenge due to pay rises and other increasing costs if more funding was not forthcoming. The Sutton Trusts poll also showed that some school leaders are using pupil premium funding to plug budget gaps. The report also underlines the issue of recruitment into the sector, with the NFER predicting that the DfE will again miss its recruitment into initial teacher training target this year. Meanwhile, the TES focused on a DfE funding rule change to help schools hit by falling pupil numbers due to a decline in birth rate. Schools that are not rated good or outstanding will be eligible for additional funding. Other changes will be introduced from 2024 to 25, and councils will set expectations around the minimum funding they must provide to support schools with significant increases in pupil numbers. Schools with more than one site will also receive extra funding where they need to duplicate services over multiple sites. Falling birth rates mean there are projected to be half a million fewer pupils in English state nurseries and primaries in 2028, compared with 2022. Nurseryworld.co.uk reports on the findings of its recent survey into staff wellbeing around Ofsted inspections. In the article on its website, it reports that over 3,000 owners, managers and staff responded to questions around mental health and wellbeing and the impact of inspections. Many responded that they felt increased stress and anxiety in the run-up to an inspection, with many having sleepless nights and some suffering from panic attacks and depression. The possibility of losing funding, should a setting be judged inadequate, was also mentioned. Full details of the survey can be found on the Nursery World website. The Guardian reports that a record figure of £4.8 billion interest has been added to student debt in Britain last year. The government has more than doubled the amount of money it makes from charging interest on student loans as graduates face borrowing costs of almost twice the rate set by the Bank of England. The Office for National Statistics said the accrued interest had doubled from £2.3 billion in the previous year. The forecast average debt among the cohort of students who started their course in 2021 and 22 is £45,800 when they complete their course. Finally, the Morning Star in Scotland reports that increased spending per school pupil is failing to deliver improved outcomes. Spending per pupil has risen to £8,500 in Scotland, compared with around £7,200 across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. But attainment in Scotland is not on a similarly rising trajectory. Research by the Institute for Fiscal Studies shows that despite having the highest spending per pupil across the UK for a long period, Test scores in reading, maths and science have either stayed the same or have been going down. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello. This week I'm going to attempt to explain in simple terms how the internet works. Let's take this tech briefing for example. I know every single one of you at some point have thought, how on earth can someone 
who makes a recording in one part of the world be broadcast globally to thousands of people and there'll be very few errors. I won't even go off when you go under a bridge. Although, I did give Tom Rogers a lift once and can tell you he's so radio he stopped talking when I drove through the Mersey Tunnel. For the internet to work, a way of allowing people to simultaneously use the same cables had to be created. The traditional phone call method could not be used because this would limit the number of users. If computers made a dedicated connection like a phone call does, then there'd be a lot of waiting going on. Imagine if you had to wait in line for a download. You are 457th in the queue. Your download is important to us. Please listen to this monotonous music while you wait. It simply wouldn't catch on. So what happens? Data is transmitted in a similar way to the postal system, just a lot quicker. Right now, this podcast is arriving on your device in a series of packets. Packets are really small chunks of data that can be sent from device to device via routers. Without getting too geeky on you, the host server gets a request from you when you press play. The request says start sending me the packets of the audio chocolate you know as Steve Woods' tech briefing. And like chocolate, it's split into chunks. These chunks are given an address to get to, an address of where they came from, some other information like the type of file being sent so your device knows which application to open it in, and a number so the packets can be ordered and rebuilt when they arrive. These packets are directed over the internet by routers that use the address information to direct them and then rebuilt by your device once they arrive. Because packets are so small and can be forwarded rapidly, lots of computers can send data at the same time and keep everybody connected. So next time you're using the internet, consider that what you're looking at has probably been split into thousands of packets routed across the world and been rebuilt in a matter of milliseconds for you to enjoy. As always, if you have a tech question, why not send it to at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods. And that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm discussing teaching writing in prisons this evening. Ella Simpson has given us her perspective on the critical role that writing plays in supporting prisoners in the outside world. And David Kendall has shared with us his experiences of working in a range of custodial settings to develop prisoners' writing skills and to cultivate self-reflection, a wider sense of perspective upon their past, the present and the future that awaits them through narrative making. Marek Kazmierski is a writer, editor and translator with extensive experience of working in the English prison system and former editor of the prison literary magazine Not Shut Up. Thanks for your patience, Marek. Hello, how are we going? Not bad. How did you come to be involved in prison education and what informs your work with prisoners? Well, I was born in um, Soviet-occupied Poland and then became an exile, a political refugee, and came to England and continued working with psychiatric units. I did a lot of voluntary work when I was at university. And it just so happens that I started teaching English and then at a conference, I ended up meeting people from Feltham Young Offenders Institute. The notorious Feltham, although it sounds a lot nicer when you say it, Feltham Young Offenders Institute in West London next to Heathrow. And um, I was doing um, English lessons and then qualifications, various things, and then the Paul Hamlin Trust set up an innovative project. So they paid me to teach creative writing to those whose first language was not English. In, 
Feltham, next door to Heathrow, we had more than 40 different nationalities, more than 50 different language groups. And the aim was to reach them and allow them to speak uh, through writing. And then I became a prison governor. And then I became the editor of Not Shut Up, which is uh, uh, was a charitable enterprise set up by creative writing tutors in London prisons and then expanded. And then I stopped. But the lessons uh, gained through that experience of being, um, you know, a child refugee myself, so some form of imprisonment, you know, the, 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 the Soviet bloc, and then um, England, and then, of course, um, teaching and publishing and writing and becoming an organizer, becoming a manager. And one thing that strikes me is that as we were listening to the news, every single news item was about money. How money impacts um, the birth rate and uh, teaching and uh, results, etc. Uh, poor results, more money, vice versa. I ask myself today, where are we in delivering as teachers, of course, and as uh, a lot was said, uh, great to hear from America and Carolina and how the American prison system has changed the British prison system. Perhaps Ella can tell us more about that because she's an expert in that, uh, you know, kind of uh, field. Um, money, money, money makes the world go round. How does that relate to our jobs as teachers and as artists and as our roles as citizens? You've put some big questions there, Marek. I wonder how I know, you see know, the relationship between <laughs> the relationship between America and prison. British prison systems at the moment. Is there a sense that we're looking to go more American in the UK, do you think? I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that question, but now that you have uh, tripped that mine, um, I did a lot of different kind of projects with different prisons. And um, one notable one was doing creative writing in, um, oh gosh, Bel it wasn't Belmarsh. I um, can't remember which one now, but it was a prison in London uh, on the South Bank. Ella, which prison on the South Bank? Isis, Thameside? No, 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 no. Uh, right in the middle there. Kind of. Never mind. Um, Wandsworth. Wandsworth, Wandsworth, that was it. And in Wandsworth, it turned out that elderly local people, the residents, had spent their whole lives from, from when they were kids, knowing that there is this fortress in their midst, but they've ne they, they'd never been inside. They didn't know what was going on. So we organized workshops where the elderly from local community centers came into the prisons and did bookbinding of a book that was written by prisoners, handmade books. So we had these old age pensioners. I don't know if we can say that these days, um, but people of a certain age, working with prisoners, bookbinding, they loved it. It took three days and uh, it wasn't enough, they wanted more. The reason I mention that is because we did poetry workshops and various other things. 
but it kind of made us think about what prisons are in our midst. And then I think about the Blues Brothers, a wonderful film which begins with a prison and ends with a concert in prison. Now, if we think about money, what if we turned all prisons in the UK, I think there's 38 of them, um, into cultural centres where the local community, kids, you know, um, uh, refugees, etc., would come in and would do storytelling. Creative writing is a very, very challenging notion. When I speak in a perfect, you know, lovely accent, it's all very nice and it's all lovely and here it is, here's grammar, here's... But that's not how they speak in prison, is it? They don't speak like that on the phone, they don't speak like that on the wings. Hello, it's a cultural issue. Money is a cultural issue. So the suggestion is, what if we, as teachers and cultural animators, put forward an ocean to make prisons cultural centres where music, theatre, Shakespeare was mentioned at the beginning, William Blake, let's bring him in, and his mind-forged manacles. New Jerusalem, what if prisons became cultural hubs where prisoners learned how to perform, how to express themselves, but got paid for that. And the local community would come in, and like the Blues Brothers, a very phenomenally successful enterprise, the best-selling blues album of all time, let's be honest, um, they were raising money for an orphanage, and they ended up in prison performing a concert. A warden threw a party in the county jail. Can we have that conversation? Could we turn prisons into places of mental transformation, cultural, emotional, cathartic, where all the things... It's a great idea. About. I'm almost getting a sense of the Greek Dionysia. In fact, I was doing mm. some reading up on Greek prisons the other mm. week in preparation for something else I was doing, and I was mm. struck by... In fact, how few prisons the ancient Greeks actually had. And mm. apparently the Athenians had one building that they referred to as the prison because, of course, mm. they didn't really lock people up unless they were awaiting trial. They tended mm -hmm. to exile them by removing them from the country. I know it sounds crazy, but the fact that we have prisons and increased, you know, population of the prisons and, and crime rates and... I speak from, you know, Eastern Europe, but I see what's going on in, in, in the streets and, of course, in the villages of Britain. Uh, drugs, crime, knife crime. Um, can we have that conversation and could the solution be the crisis in prisons and the idea of enterprise, of community cooperative enterprise? Let me throw that into the mix. It's a great question. I'll put it to David, because, of course, David, your penned up festival aims mm. to perhaps tackle some of these uh, issues and perhaps expose people in prison to culture that they might not otherwise have experienced in their earlier lives. What do you think about that, David?
Christopher, I think you're unmuting me, and I will attempt to answer that question, but I think I, I want to hear what David Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Um, so the question would be about penned up, and I think Marit's point about cultural centres is really interesting. There are 119 prisons in England and Wales, just, just in England and Wales, 119 prisons of all different types and sizes. Um, I've run events in, I don't know, probably about, about 30 of them, and I've run the festival in probably three and the smaller festivals in another four or five. So it's interesting. I think I think it's a good point about bringing people in as well from the outside to share an event. I think that is, it's a logistic, it's a bit of a nightmare, but it does work. Um, and I think people in prison are very pleased to see people from the outside coming in. And it, if nothing else, it enables people to put on a different side of themselves uh, when they meet other people to what they often show to officers and staff. It's, it's an opportunity to be different. I think um, when we do end up, the idea is that people get a choice over who comes into their prison. So we form a committee um, and it's a committee of prisoners, staff, uh, and myself, and we put together a grand list of people that we would like to invite in. Um, and then we write our letters, get in contact with people, and we work out how to spend our budget. Um, the men uh, in Ulster, for instance, they will also be involved in introducing the people that come in. Um, and sometimes they'll be doing the interviewing uh, as well as taking part in the workshops. And that's that's really important that they are the visible point of the festival which is not easy because within a prison, particularly for people doing um, long-term sentences, it's sometimes not advantageous for their prisoner self to be seen to be too pally with either outside staff or with education staff. Um, so it's a tightrope that they walk as well. Um, but generally speaking, we've had really good responses. And yes, one of the comments that we, people say is, well, I would never have met that person if I hadn't been in prison. Um, sometimes we bring in ex-prisoners who've done good, who've become writers, but also we bring in as, as, a, as varied a program as we can uh, and that reflects the interests of those people in that particular prison. A lot to cover tonight, so thank you for your call. And Marip, did you have any thoughts on this sense of prison as a redemptive force, potentially, and the degree to which some kind of arts festival might contribute to that sense of redemption? I do, certainly. One thing I'd like to mention is Czesław Miłosz, a Nobel Prize winning poet um, who I've translated into English, uh, wrote a book called The Captive Mind. And that brings us into the notion of what it means to be free, unfree society and generally the structures we create. He said that when a writer is born into a family, that family is finished. It's one of those famous quotes, you know, catchy thing. When a writer is born into a family, uh, the family's over, yeah? By the way, American prisons are divided in categories and things. I've had a lot of experience working with American prisoners. Um, and of course, 
risk management, what we are allowed to say and do. Czesław Miłosz, the Nobel Prize winning author, campaigned against the Soviet Empire and you know various other things, regimes. Writing, storytelling, expressing yourself is a powerful tool or a weapon. And so this idea of the captive mind and when we allow and empower people to write, we do something that isn't physically dangerous. But what if the next King of England, let's imagine that, said he is tired of 138, absolutely, it's not, not, not 30 something, it's 130 establishments with the Queen or the King's crown upon them all across the, the nation. What if the next King of Britain said, I want to do something about this. I want to look at the reasons why people offend, why there is crime, identify them. Very powerful, very rich man. And then use those stories that we can tell to each other to change the paradigm. And that word paradigm is one that I take away from today's conversation because I've, we've covered a lot of ground but what's the essential truth? If you're behind bars and you want to know why and what's happening next, what's the essential truth of being in prison and society and what society does to you as a person who is denied a voice and access to books, access to writing materials, access to family, and ultimately access to freedom of speech? So it sounds to me like, Marek, you're suggesting that freedom begins rather mm -hmm. perversely inside the prison and it's then taken into the outside world. Not Shut Up, the magazine that I was editing for five years after I finished working for the Ministry of Justice, as it's called, um, made me aware that we were treating prisoners and creative writing as some kind of a privilege that we were giving to them and there were uh, these 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 you know judases that that betrayed society the truth was quite the opposite that most of us don't understand freedom until it's taken away and those who write in prisons reveal to us the true nature of the mechanisms behind society and back to money and everything that essentially defines who we are and what we're allowed to do. Um, so yes, um, creative writing in prisons is actually a very dangerous thing. Not physically, it's not about separating the sex offenders and the maximum security prisoners. That's not what we mean. It's not about risk management in that sense. It's about what society values and what we as free citizens are actually empowered and liberated to do ourselves. Prisons and creative writing and culture is a threat to some of those paradigms. I think that's a very good point to bring in Ella here. Ella, what have you made so far of the conversations we've heard before we move into hearing perhaps some actual texts produced by prisoners themselves? 
Yeah, um, so much. Um, I think I'm going to narrow it down. to. So William talked about redemption. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really key thing in, and, and David and Mary can disagree with me, I don't think they will. So the idea of redemption or the idea of people's ability to change, I think is really fundamental to the work that we do as, as, as facilitators in a prison. There's kind, you know, there's, we're not going to lock people up and throw away the key because actually change is possible um, for everyone. And literature and, and writing can be a conduit um, to that change. Um, and I want to pick up, so as Merrick says, I think, and I think part of the reason that we are still, you know, at the start of the 21st century, quite often defending and as, as, as the previous caller was talking, she, she hasn't been allowed to go into prisons to do this work. She's been blocked. Um, and, and certainly also in the UK, we have to make very good cases as to why, you know, prisoners should be allowed um, to um, be engaged in, in, in these kind of creative activities. Um, and a lot of the things that we're talking about, about desistance, um, come into those arguments. But I think part of the reason that the system is so resistant is because it's quite dangerous stuff. Because we're saying to people, think for yourselves, reflect, um, take agency, you know, and, and tell your own story. And if we believe that stories then can become a part of reality, whether that's an individual story that we tell ourselves and it leads to identity change, or whether that is having some kind of impact on larger societal narratives, um, then that's a risky thing if, if you want to uphold the status quo. Um, interestingly, so the research I base a lot of my research on um, is by this guy called Shad Maruna, and he talks about redemption narratives. So he has this idea in his own research that he finds that people who stop offending have more of a sense of agency. They have super agency. They believe they can do more than, than, than the realistic situation would suggest is possible, you know, and, and they find a real me that it's existed before the crime or, or before um, those aspects in their lives. And so that's quite dangerous. If, if we're saying to people, actually, you're in charge, you're, 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 you have agency and, and, and you can do things that maybe you never dreamt you could do, you know, you, you have that kind of imagination, that can be quite challenging. Um, so, yeah, kind of agreeing with Merrick and tying into that. And then I think, and I know William posted a couple of messages about um, the violence in prisons. And I think, I mean, I think there is some amount of violence in prisons. Personally, I haven't, I've worked in prisons for over a decade, haven't seen that much. Um, but it does exist. But I think sometimes we need to think about what's the cause and what's the effect of that. So a very powerful metaphor that uh, another colleague used recently um, in a conversation. And she said, you know, if you put an animal in a cage and you beat it every day, 
um, when you open that cage, it's going to bite you. Um, and I think the, to, to some degree that particularly, and I'm not saying that all prisons are dreadful, inhumane, hideous places. There is a lot of good practice in prisons, both in prison education and beyond that. But it is a tendency of the system and particularly having spent three years dealing with COVID restrictions, people literally are and have been being locked up for 23 hours a day, much more frequently than uh, was, although it didn't, it was happening before the pandemic, but not on that scale. And interestingly, we're seeing a rise in violence um, that correlates with that. Um, But I think in some senses, not if you're on the receiving end of it, but in the grand scheme of things, that kind of violence is lesser than the kind of structural violence um, that can be imposed upon people, upon societies, um, and upon particular groups in society. Um, and it is used, and, and I think maybe people, when they come into a prison, and they experience being right on the business end of, of that kind of structural violence. Um, and then if we give people the tools to write about that and, and talk about it and think about it in ways that maybe they haven't before, I think, yes, it has an essence of danger to it, but it also, at the same time, can be potentially transformative, not only individual uh, for individuals, but social for society um at its absolute apotheosis um and i think i aim for that at some level in the work that i do great so this giving these students in prison the tools to develop a sense of who they are a sense of who they're going to become when they leave and a voice. I wonder if we might close for the next 10 to 15 minutes or so by hearing some of the writing products that have come out of people's projects in prison. Uh, David, would you like to start us off? Yes, okay. I'll, I'll read two pieces, two short pieces. The first is a, a poem um, called The Ironic List of What's to Come. An acorn warship nuclear cavemen, the brightest future from the darkest pasts, the fortune teller's lottery numbers, a blank piece of paper contains every picture, the simple choices, the hardest path, the hammer builds, the hammer kills, death makes fertile ground, signpost, every hero wore nappies, destiny's day off, Life's journey has side streets, beginning, middle, end and repeat. History has a future, bird in the wire, voices from the wall, a letter to myself. My ancestors' fights are still our battles. One history, a thousand futures, live to die. I'm struck by the line, our ancestors' fights are still our battles. Yes, and every hero wore nappies, I think is fantastic. Every hero wore nappies is a, is a great line. Marek, what do you think of this writing that is being generated here? I think it's something which, in, in the experiences I've had, is something everyone dreams of. 
anyone who's ever worked in prisons and you know always hears someone saying oh i wish i could get locked up i could catch up on reading i could write the great novel and let's turn the tables and let's realize that freedom of the mind actually happens when we are denied our own freedom when we are locked up and when we are confronted with time and uh, this idea of, of, of the COVID, the new normal and being locked up for 30, 23 hours a day. This is terrible stuff, but the idea of physical violence and mental violence and oppression. Um, I Working in prisons and many prisons and then, of course, hearing stories of prisons in South America, Central America, Asia, North America. Um, and I'm very glad we had those voices from, from the USA today. Um, what's the story, Morning Glory? What's the, 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 what's the beef? You know, what's, what's the actual message that so few of us really know freedom until we've been denied it? And then we begin to value what we have. And how much of that freedom is real in our society today? A lot of the voices from prisons make us think about that. And that's a real danger. Yeah, I'm also in mind of Kafka in the sense that we're only kind mm. of one false accusation or one mistake away from incarceration ourselves at any moment in our lives. Kafka, Orwell, William Blake, Shakespeare, absolutely. David, what was the second piece you wanted to read for us? This one, it was from um, a workshop or from a, a task that was to think about nature and what it was during COVID. And while people on the outside started to get, you know, used to foxes traipsing across their, their gardens, um, for people on the inside uh, banged up for 23 and a half hours a day, a lot of it was in their memories trying to remember the last time they encountered nature so this was a guy who wrote about that amazing here's me banged up and just writing a few lines makes me feel free i remember a magpie flying in my bedroom window it stayed with me for three days before it flew off probably the funniest thing i experienced to do with nature was near my local shops a fox came over to me staring at me but pretty cautious I went into a chippy, got him a battered sausage and threw it to him. After that, he disappeared. When I went to get the bus home, do you know, I wasn't allowed on. The driver said I couldn't bring my friend. I looked around and there was the fox trying to get on the bus with me. I had to walk to work that day. Funny thing about nature, we watch it on the telly. But if we actually took the time, we'd notice the more concrete we put down, the more we're depriving ourselves of its existence. And was that written by a prisoner who'd had much experience of the countryside in their previous life? Um, not much. Um, it was about somebody who's, you know, sort of passed fields on their on their way to work. Really, um, it was that well, a very normal experience, really, uh, of nature being just on the other side of a hedge, not really taking part of your life. And what do you think your group gained from uh, writing these? Did they share them with each other in the group after they'd been written? 
Well, this was during COVID, so they were all doing it in their cells by themselves. Um, but normally sharing is very, very important. Um, but the guy who wrote this, it, it was that he managed to summon that memory back up again. And, you know, when you're in prison, there are so many other memories that batter your head all the time, uh, much more negative. So to pull out a more positive one and make it make it real for other people by writing about it, it was a very positive experience for this guy. Thank you. And Marek, how did the prisoners you were working with respond to this idea of having a literary magazine in a prison? <clears throat> well, can I say that particular poem or, or kind of, you know, narrative uh, uh, free prose was fantastic. There were so many things to unpick. Um, you know, the bird and the, the birdman of Alcatraz and the area of the wily fox and the criminal mindset and all those kind of so many things there. That was wonderful. Um, in terms of writing in prisons and publishing in prisons, um, I remember when I was doing the creative writing project with Paul Hamlin and the foreign nationals in Feltham, there was a national creative writing competition in prisons. And you could win some money and, you know, which which in a prison went a long way, actually. Um, none of the British prisoners in that jail uh, uh, sent in an, an entry. I went round the prison and I delivered entry forms to every single cell, asking every single prisoner to contribute and send in a story. Um, none of them did, but an Algerian boy um, won the national, the top prize. Not some lifer, because they all thought it'd be somebody who's writing and, you know, some gangster. Now it was a 17-year-old Algerian refugee um, telling the story of what writing meant for him. And of course, religion, culture, and those kind of angles. After the boy from Feltham, whose first language was not English, it was Arabic, French, he won the top prize. I had a queue of prisoners trying to, when's the next competition, Gov? I've got the story, check this out, blah, blah, blah. It was really interesting to see how their belief system and their ability to, I guess, monetize and, and this idea of how we reward writers really then reaches out to the wider society. How we give prizes for books, for films, for albums, the Nobel Prize, you know, and all those kind of mechanisms. Why do we treat books and creative people like horses who race against each other? Why is it a competitive environment in a prison that's very important? How people judge themselves and the value of the story they have to tell, that's something to unpick in a capitalist, consumerist, globalized society. Stories cost nothing to say. And those, the, the bird and the fox and the fact the guy had to walk to work, that was, a, it was like Chekhov. That was fantastic. I loved listening to that. It was a great line, wasn't it? Mm. 
And have you had much experience, Marek, working with writers from Eastern Europe in translation who have found themselves in prison because they got on the wrong side of the government? Well, now we have the war in Ukraine, of course, and Belarus, and of course, Russia. Um, let's not stop there. Let's see it from the perspective of a prisoner. How many prisons and detention centers and um, actually uh, concentration camps are in China? And all those things impact on who buys property in London, who buys property in Kent, in Essex, yeah? Uh, what sort of tourists come to England? Who gets robbed on the trains? Um, we live in a very, very, very new world to the one we were born in. Trying to understand it is not the job of maybe storytellers. And the experience of people I've worked with and the writers I work with in Central and Eastern Europe today is for me much more, uh, I think, lucid when I think back to my experience of working with people in prisons. In the UK, in America, in Ireland, in Scotland, I visited many prisons. Um, and back to Blake, the mind forged manacles and this idea of education itself, another brick in the wall. What do walls make? Maybe protective things that, that defend us, but also things that you know, keep the criminal element out, right? What's the story there? in the 21st century where machines can do the work computers can manage the work what are we for now that we have this computerized systems artificial intelligence how do prisoners feel about that and how do teachers feel about the future of our role as storytelling species and true freedoms do you know marek we've closed on again some big questions i think we're setting up here the content for a, a future show a couple of months down the line it'd be great to have uh, you back and david back to explore some of these in a bit more detail if, if you're happy to do that sure sure, <laughs> sure. final word to you ella what have you made of tonight's conversation well, it was a big conversation, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for giving me the summing up. Um, I think what I really, what I take from it is, um, you know, and all these different, I mean, both Merrick and David are fabulous uh, facilitators um, working in, in, in difficult circumstances and, and, and making really amazing and you know those two poems um are quite extraordinary one i bet that guy when he he sat down to write that poem didn't think that he could produce what he then produced um and then actually the the poem about the fox what i really loved about it was it was a, a very prosaic's the wrong word but it was a very um non-grandiose it wasn't a dramatic telling it was a guy telling about his day and you know going down to the bus and whatever but there was this kind of gem of reflection that comes out of it which is partly as Merrick says because of where he is 
in a prison. And, and, and this is a place where we really hit up against what the idea of freedom is when it's taken away from us. But on its own, if you just hit up against that idea, you know, if you bash your head against a brick wall um, of captivity, that isn't in any way creative or productive. But I think so much of the work that we've been talking about tonight is about taking that frustration and that lack of freedom and allowing people ways to access a sense of freedom from within and also not just freedom a sense of reflection and the ability to understand and gain insight into things that we all pass by every day because we don't have the time or attention for it so it it gives us the, the kind of work that we're doing we've been talking about accessibility in terms of making creative writing accessible for 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 people in prison but actually i think also the converse of that it um it makes our own thoughts and our own inner selves accessible to ourselves and that's a task that you know there's a there's a multi-dollar industry in meditation and mind-body medicine and all these kinds of things trying to allow people access to that inner world and their inner realm and in fact it's happening in prisons through a process of of introducing people to their own creativity well what a great way to conclude tonight's show and Thank you very much, Ella, David and Marek and callers for your contributions tonight. It's been wonderful to host a discussion between people so committed to using the power of literacy, language and narrative to make such a positive impact upon the lives of some of England's most forgotten students, those that complete their studies on the English prison estate. I hope your work continues to demonstrate to policymakers bureaucrats and budget holders, as the topic of money has come up a few times, the long-term value of investing in prison writing and education programmes that enable all who find themselves in custody to retain a voice. Thank you very much indeed to you all. Thank you. Really great talk to everyone. Thank Thank you. Well, that brings us to the end of another show. So thanks to Dr. Ella Simpson, David Kendall and Marek Kazmierski for being such great guests this evening. I hope you have all benefited from the chance to hear a little bit more about the teaching, learning and training that goes on behind the locked doors of our prisons. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in to the show tonight and texted in. Do check out our other Teachers Talk radio shows this week. Mary Greenhall is talking to Joe Heyman about the importance of teaching British values in schools on tomorrow's morning break show at 11. And Ben Thomas is exploring a not-so-secret life of a head teacher with Louise Sanguera on Tuesday night's Twilight show at 6pm. You can catch up with anything you've missed with our excellent and ever-growing panel of teacher presenters at www.ttradio.org. And if you have something you want to say or ask others about education here in the UK or further afield, 
then perhaps you should consider applying to join the station as a show host. We are always on the lookout for those with current or recent experience of the classroom and other less familiar educational settings. Full details can be found on our website, www.ttradio.org. That's all from me for this month. So thank you for listening. I wish you and your students a happy and successful term as exams approach imminently. And I look forward to speaking with you again in May. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.